Thank you, Lord Jesus, that that is true, that you have come, not only to remove the curse from us, but to remove all of the effects of the curse, to lift the curse from the whole of the creation. And we sing your praises for that and ask that these gifts, these tithes and offerings might be used so that that great good news could be heard here and around the world. We pray in your name. Amen. Please turn with me, if you've been following the Advent uh, listing, the readings for Advent, you'll know that this morning we're actually reading from Revelation chapter 12 and not 1 Corinthians. When, uh, when computers were invented, it was a beautiful thing, but they present certain problems to, uh, to computer idiots such as myself. When you cut and you paste from previous years, sometimes... You don't cut things that ought to be cut, and you don't paste things that ought to be pasted. Well, what should have been pasted is Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6. So, please read with me. And those of you who are interested in sermon titles and such, uh, the sermon title this morning is Understanding the Incarnation, which gives us a real and growing hope. So, read with me at Revelation chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which She is to be nourished for 1,260 days. It's another perspective on the incarnation, isn't it? Let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at his word together. Father, thank you uh, so much for this season of the year and for this occasion for us uh, to be together to worship and now to think your thoughts after you. Uh, Would you grant your spirit, would you help us this morning uh, so that our hearts might be encouraged, so that our hope might be sustained? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Someone said to me uh, earlier this week, you know, I don't watch any of the movies you watch. So when you do this movie thing, I'm just completely disconnected. I have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, it wasn't put to me in quite that way, but that was the effect of it. So, uh, with apologies to those of you who who haven't ever seen uh, the Shawshank Redemption, I have to use this uh, scene as a way to get us uh, started this morning. I mean, I don't have to, but I'm choosing to. Um, It's a scene in the mess hall at Shawshank Prison, and Andy Dufresne, who is a convicted murderer, innocent we learn, but a convicted murderer, has just been released from solitary confinement. He was in there for two weeks. I think it's two weeks. Maybe it was four. I think it was two weeks. 
And he was in the rat hole. Uh, but he comes out smiling. The reason he was in solitary is because uh, he had played over the public address system of, of the Shawshank prison an aria from Mozart's uh, great opera, The Marriage of Figaro. Uh, and, and he got busted for playing this, uh, this aria. And when he gets out of solitary, he comes into the mess hall and he's, and he's sort of smiling. I mean, he's, he's sort of kind of semi-euphoric. Uh, and, and his buddies want to know what the deal is. I mean, you've just spent two weeks in solitary. How can you be, how can you be so happy? How can you be smiling? And here's the little exchange that he has with, with Red, who is his best friend, his best buddy in, uh, in prison. And he says, I had Mozart with me to keep me company in here. And he says, and in here. And then he says, that's the beauty of music. They can't take that from you. Haven't you ever felt that way about music? And then Red, his friend, says, I played a mean harmonic as a younger man. Lost interest in it, though. Didn't make much sense in here. And then Andy responds, here is where you need it the most and where it makes the most sense. You need it so you don't forget. Forget? Yeah. So that you don't forget there are places in this world not made of stone. That there's something inside you that they can't get to, that they can't touch, that's yours. What are you talking about? Red asks. And then Andy says, hope. Hope. And then Red says, let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's got no place here. And you better get used to the idea. Hope. Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope can make a man insane. The problem is hope. But the problem with hope is that we can't seem to stop hoping. Can we? Hope is a problem. And the problem that hope is, is that we can't seem to stop hoping. Luke twenty four twenty one. We had hoped that he was the one To redeem Israel. We had hoped. The disciples on the road to Emmaus. Just a few hours after the resurrection of Jesus. On the first Easter morning. We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Move forward from the disciples on the road to Emmaus. 
and their shattered hopes, their dashed dreams. Move forward some 60 years into Asia Minor or Greece or maybe into Rome where Christianity is in effect outlawed. Nero is gone, but some people retain the memory from just 25 or so years previously that Nero had impaled Christians on crosses, that Nero had used Christians as torches in his gardens. Christianity is virtually outlawed. Martyrdom is commonplace. Riots break out in places like Ephesus. When someone like Paul begins to preach the gospel and the gospel takes hold and it begins to disrupt the order of things in a place like Ephesus. People like Stephen are stoned. People like James is beheaded. People are scourged and beaten with rods. They're sewn up in the skins of animals. Put in the middle of the theater and lions are released to tear them apart. happens to hope? (laughs) What happens to hope in 90 A.D. or 92 A.D.? Gee, I didn't know Christianity was going to be like this. We hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. Christianity is spread, but people are dying for that spread. People are in prison. John is in prison. Likely the last of the disciples alive, he is in prison. He is on the island of Patmos. It is 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus gives him a book. And Jesus gives him this book that he might give this book to the church. It is the last word from God. Jesus gives this book to John so that John can give it to the church. And he gives it to the church for one reason. Folks, this is something that makes me nuts. Lots of things make me nuts. I am nuts. But this is something that makes me nuts. So much ink has been spilled trying to figure out numbers and symbols and where and when The world will end. Is it now or is it later? So much ink has been spilled over the book of Revelation. And all of that ink obscures the single reason Jesus gives this book to his church. To encourage and sustain their hope. To encourage and sustain their hope. Let's do three things from the book of Revelation. Not just this passage. But from the book of the Revelation, let's do three things in these remaining minutes on this second Sunday in Advent. Let's think about the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, but not as an isolated thing. Let's think about it from John's perspective 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's think about it in connection with the rest of the story, three things. Let's see the big picture. Let's look at a snapshot, and then let's think briefly about the outcome. Big picture, snapshot, and outcome. First, the big picture, the big view of things. 
I've had us read chapter 12 this morning because if you read the commentators, if you read people like Derek Thomas and Dennis Johnson and Greg Beal and others, they will tell you that this 12th chapter is the center of the book, not just because it is literally very near near the center of the book, but because this chapter stands as what we could call the, the historical redemptive center of the book. This 12th chapter actually is a composite of of, of one snapshot, one picture broken into two pieces, things in verses 1 through 6 viewed from an earthly perspective and things in verse 7 and following viewed from a heavenly perspective. The same event, the same stuff, but viewed from these two different perspectives. It represents the fulfillment of, of the, of the redemptive purpose of God in history. That's what chapter 12 is showing us. Chapter 12 is showing us Christ's conquest of Satan and his ascension to the throne. More on that in just a minute. That's what chapter 12 is. It's the snapshot. But here's the big picture. Here's the grand perspective. The grand perspective actually appears earlier in the book in the opening five chapters of the Revelation. And the opening five chapters of the Revelation show us what is currently going on for John in his day, for people living in the 3rd century A.D., the 8th century A.D., the 14th century A.D., down to the present day. The first five chapters show us what is going on right now. Chapter 1, the glorified Christ. See, the Revelation is not a chronological thing. Don't read it chronologically. Think of walking into an art museum and seeing representations in pictorial form around the room, showing you varieties of things. Don't read it in a linear sort of way, a sequential sort of way. You'll get in trouble if you do. The book begins by showing us the glorified Christ. So glorious is Jesus that when John beholds him, the same thing happened to him that happened to Isaiah when Isaiah saw God in all of his glory in Isaiah chapter 6. He fell down as a dead man. Christ clothed in the refulgent splendor of God himself. And then chapters 2 and 3 show us this glorified Christ in the midst of his church, the letters to the seven churches. What's the big lesson that you take from the letters to the seven churches? Jesus sees. Jesus knows. Jesus is in the midst of his church. Jesus is present with his people. It was true in John's day. And it's true down to the present. And then from that earthly perspective, the glorified Christ in the midst of his people, chapters 1, 2, and 3, were then ushered into the throne room. We're lifted up. A, a door is opened. Revelation 4, 1 tells us. John says, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. 
And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. One through three is earthly, glorified Christ in the midst of his people, seeing them, knowing them, present with them, correcting them, encouraging them, rebuking them, instructing them. But chapters 4 and 5 now usher us up into the throne room of God. And John looks up and sees the same thing from the, now from the heavenly perspective. We've seen the glorified Christ at the earthly level. We're now ushered up into heaven where we see God is the Lord of all creation. That's what chapter 4 is about. Read chapter 4. It ends at verse 11 with this song, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. What's being celebrated in chapter 4 is God as the source, the author of all things. This is really a kind of a recapitulation of Genesis 1. The movement of the days of creation in the direction of the seventh day where God is enthroned as King and Lord over all and the whole of the creation enjoying His benevolence, enjoying the shalom that He distributes upon the whole of the creation. Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We could camp there for a long time, couldn't we? We could go back to Psalms 92 and 95 and 96 and 97, things that we looked at last week, and we could hear the whole of the creation singing the praises of the God who has made it. That's chapter 4. But then you move into chapter 5. And what is it that chapter 5 celebrates? Read these verses. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, the one seated on the throne is the Lord of glory, ensconced in glory, enfolded and surrounded in glory. And Here's this anthropomorphism, this use of, of language that we understand to describe what cannot be comprehended. God doesn't have hands. He doesn't have feet. He doesn't have eyes. We understand that. We understand this is symbolic, highly symbolic language. But in his right hand is a scroll. And John, verse 2, sees a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, John, began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll, the scroll which is the book of history, the book which tells us what is going to happen, what is going to unfold across the centuries of history from the first advent of Christ until the second advent of Christ. No one is found worthy to open it until... One of the elders, verse 5, says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion. The root of David has conquered. 
has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. What, what remarkable affirmations of Jesus, the glorified Christ. He is the Lion of Judah. He's the fulfillment of all of those promises. This is what we've been saying over recent weeks. But notice this next phrase. He is the root of David. Wait a second. I thought he was the offspring of David. I I thought that the promise of Isaiah was that that a shoot would come forth from the stump. But here Jesus, the Lion of Judah, is described not as the fruit of the line of David, but the source of the line of David. He's the root. See, we get all caught up in time and the sequence of things and the unflowing of history. But who is the king above every king? who has existed eternally together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. It is the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. And He, this is what is being affirmed, He, Jesus, is actually the source, not just the fruit of the lineage of David. Yes, David would have a descendant, And that descendant would sit upon his throne. That's what was affirmed to Mary. We looked at it last week. He will give him the throne of his father, David. But you see, before before history begins to unfold and these promises begin to be unfolded, before all of that, there is eternally the second person of the Godhead who is the source who is the source of David's very existence and the source of all of those who flow from him leading in history to the fulfillment of all of those promises made to David in this son of David who is Jesus Christ. What is it that's being celebrated in chapter 5? This is the third little thing to point out, the fact that he has conquered and because he has conquered, he is worthy to open the scroll, which he begins to do in chapter 6. And notice through the rest of chapter 6 that everything in the whole of the creation worships the glorified Christ. Worthy are you to take the scroll And to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. He has conquered in the view of John, in the view of the book of the Revelation. He has conquered. And he has redeemed a people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue. He's just about the business now of collecting them. Right? He's just, he's just running to and fro across the face of the earth. He's gathering his folk. He's gathering his people. The guy say one time, 
God loves Gentiles, you know. He collects them. What is being celebrated here? That Jesus, the Lion of David, the the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered. And he is fulfilling Daniel chapter 7, that glorious passage where one like a son of man approaches the Ancient of Days and to him is given power and dominion and authority and a kingdom that will never end. That's what's happening here. It was happening in John's day. It is happening in our day. You know, my heart goes out to those disciples on the road to Emmaus. We had thought that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. I get broken dreams. I get dashed hopes. I get squashed aspirations and longings. But you know what the problem, not to be unfair or unkind to those two guys on the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem on that first Easter morning, not to be unkind. You know what their problem was? Their problem was their vision was way too small and way too localized. Jesus is about something much more marvelous and glorious than simply being the Redeemer of Israel. Read Isaiah. Don't have the text. It just comes into my head. This happens in preaching. Forgive me. But go find it in the prophecy of Isaiah where God says it's too small a thing for you just to be the Savior of Judah. I'm going to make you the Savior of the nations. That's what's happening. God is being glorified as the creator of all things, and Jesus is being glorified as the redeemer of all things. Most especially a people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue. And how did he get there? How did we get to this place? The snapshot. Back to chapter 12. How did Jesus get there? A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Who's the woman? Let me encourage you, let me encourage you to read the commentaries. They'll, they'll take you back, almost all of them will take you back to Genesis 37 and to Joseph's vision of the sun, moon, and the stars, 11 stars, And a sun and a moon bowing down and worshiping him, falling before him. That imagery of sun, moon, and stars came to be a characterization of the nation Israel. Who is the woman clothed in sun, moon, and stars? The woman is Israel. And why does the woman exist? Why does the woman exist? Go back to Genesis 3.15. What's the initial word that God speaks? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The seminal promise, the promise out of which all of the other promises grow. The promise which Samuel Rutherford says gives rise to this succession of footnotes. The unpacking of that initial promise. The whole of the Bible is but a series of footnotes to Genesis 3.15. Who is the woman? The woman is Israel. Israel exists for this special, most glorious, single purpose. I get in trouble. Their glorious purpose is not to occupy a piece of real estate along the eastern Mediterranean. Their glorious purpose is to give birth to the Savior of the world, the Messiah of God. Who is the child? The child is that seed of the woman. The child is that son. Who is the dragon? Verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. Who is the dragon? The dragon is the serpent who's clothed seven heads, seven horns, seven diadems, clothed with wisdom, power, and authority. And the devil is there to do what the devil has always been there to do. The devil is there ultimately to destroy the woman and consume her offspring. There has always been conflict between the serpent and the seed of the serpent and the woman and the seed of the woman. Faith Versus no faith. Belief versus unbelief. Conflict, friends. John knows about conflict. His peers know about conflict. The dragon, the serpent, the great enemy and opponent of God and of his people is there to consume the child and then subsequently seeks to destroy the woman. Conflict. Always conflict. Glenn, Glenn sent me a heartbreaking article this past week. St. George's Tron, a church in the Scottish Presbyterian Church, a church, a congregation, was banished from its own building for holding fast the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Eric Alexander's former church. Sinclair Ferguson's former church. The congregation, beloved of Christ, banished from their building for holding faithfully to the truths of the gospel when the world so infects the church, the church can become the enemy of the church. And it's all, it's all just another iteration of the conflict. But notice what happens. This great enemy of God, this great opponent of the people of God, clothed with wisdom and power and authority, seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems. Notice this. All of it 
is powerless before God. The devil of hell, the great deceiver, the great liar, the great imitator is powerless and impotent before the glory of God. Look at what is said. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, fulfilling all of those Old Testament promises, fulfilling Israel's purpose for herself to bring forth this Messiah who would fulfill Psalm 2, who would be seated in Zion, not an earthly Zion, but the heavenly Zion upon the throne that the Father gives Him, who would be seated upon Zion and from that glorious perch would rule the nations with a rod of iron. And what happens to this child? The end of verse 5. He is caught up to God and to His throne. Gone. Where? To the throne of His Father. There to receive all power. All authority. He says it at the end of Matthew's Gospel. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore into all the nations and make disciples of them. Jesus, having come in the weakness and humility of human flesh. Right? That's what this season is about. Jesus, having come in weakness and in the humility of human flesh, is no longer weak. But He is the Lord of glory, seated with His Father upon the throne from which He rules and reigns and by which authority and power he is ruling the nations. Who's in charge here, folks? Who's in charge? Jesus. Ruling and reigning. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-six that he must reign until he has put every enemy under his feet. He was ruling then, He is ruling now. He will not stop ruling until he has put every enemy under his feet. The last enemy of which haunts you every day of your lives. Death. When that last enemy is crushed under his feet fully and finally and forever, then will be fulfilled the saying which is said, O death, where is your sting? How do you get to chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation? Through this snapshot, chapter 12. The son born, the son caught up to the throne where he now is clothed with power. And what is the outcome of all of this? What is the outcome of all of this? 
The outcome is what we have alluded to already. The outcome of this exaltation. Can you have to read chapter 12 of Revelation verses 7 and following? The outcome of all of this. Verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down. See, 1 through 6 and 7 through the end of the chapter are viewing the same events from different perspectives. 1 through 6, earthly. 7 and following, heavenly. What happened when Christ, raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, is clothed with power and glory? What happens? The great enemy is thrown down. And he is today, now, in the church, through the church, by the church's preaching of the gospel, and living the realities of that gospel That great enemy who has been thrown down is being trampled underfoot and will continue to be trampled underfoot until the day when Jesus returns and exterminates him. Exterminates him. Luke 10, verses 17 through 19. I'll finish with this. And we'll come to the Lord's table Luke 10, 17 through 19 is a short little passage in which Luke recounts the return of the 70 from their gospel preaching mission. And they come back stunned and amazed that even the devils, the demons, are subject to them in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, looking up to heaven, extolling implicitly the virtues and powers of his Father, with which he has been clothed. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the ground. What elicited that from Jesus? What elicited that response? The success of a gospel preaching mission. The one who came in weakness and humility now lives in glory and splendor. He is ruling. He is reigning. This is what sustains hope, folks. This is what sustains your hope and my hope. Not what we see happening out here, around us, in the world, at St. George's Tron. But what can't be seen except by the eyes of faith, Jesus clothed in glory and power with a scepter in his hand, ruling over all the nations until every enemy is crushed under his feet. John 16, 33, my wife's favorite verse. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, King of glory, ruling and reigning, wielding that scepter for the glory and honor of your Father and for the good of your people, encourage hope among your people as they see you robed in that splendor, and await your return. 
We ask in your name. Amen.